guys, welcome back to another episode of Control All Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I'd just like to let you guys know that I have a career coaching program. So if you're feeling unfulfilled or not so happy at your corporate job, but maybe not so sure what else you'd want to do, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or via LinkedIn. I love to see how I can help you. And for those of you who maybe aren't so sure what you'd want to do, but would love to take some action today and try to figure this out by yourself, I am sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion today. It's a framework that's helped me and my clients in finance, tech, law, consulting, and more figure out what their dream job is. Want it? Feel free to check out the show notes to today's episode for the framework. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lily Wu, who started two businesses, one selling sneakers and the second one in education. And the amazing thing is she started both of these businesses before she even graduated university. After she sold her second business, she spent a year living the digital nomad life, working while traveling through Europe and South America. How amazing is that? She now works at Stripe and also on the side is a co-founder of Wow Pixies NFT, which is a social DAO that invests in women and diversity-led projects within the NFT ecosystem. So since Lily has done quite a few things in her career, I've actually split this episode up into two parts. The first part covering Lily's experiences building her first two businesses and the second part on why she decided to go back to corporate and her current experiences setting up and building an NFT project. All right, without further ado, let's hand it over now to Lily to share the first part of her story. I would just like to start all the way from the beginning with you. I know you've started a couple businesses and you were saying that before you even got to university, you started your very first business. So would love to get started with just asking you about that. What was that business about and what made you decide to start a business at such a young age? I never thought I would be doing anything related to business. My parents are both artists. My brother's a designer. I always thought I was going to do something art-related, maybe become a graphic designer or go to Japan, study animation. So I had no interest in business. However, during the financial crisis, my parents actually used to own these galleries at the Rocks in Sydney, which is in a very touristy area. And because there were no tourists coming to Australia, they had to shut it down. They weren't making any income. And art just as a career is relatively unstable. So they had to go figure out their own life and went back to China for three months. And at the time they gave me $100. Looking back, I assumed that they thought that when I ran out of money, I would just ask them for more instead of giving me like a whole bunch of cash to begin with. But I felt really guilty. I felt really bad that during this period, they weren't making much money at all. So I was just trying to live off as much as I could with the $100, maybe last like a week and a half. Once it was running out, it's like using whatever chump change I had. Then I thought, okay, why not just apply for like McDonald's or KFC mm-hmm. or retail stores? Because you can start working in Australia after your think 13 and nine months. The problem was that I couldn't get a single one. I literally would be in a group interview and they would hire every single one except for me. 
during that time, I really wanted these shoes that everyone was super into, which was the Adidas Jeremy Scott wing shoes. And they retail in Australia for $300. You can only buy them in certain stores. They only have one type and they're quite expensive. The Australian dollar was higher than American dollar, which is absurd to think now. And I had met this girl the year before. We were both doing competitive ballet. And so I met her in a bunch of Americans in Italy and her parents had owned an Adidas outlet. So I asked her how much of these shoes that I want, which are out of season in the US, is always in season in Australia. And you want to guess how much? Half the price, like 100, 150, like 50? It was 50, yeah. What? Oh my God. So the markup was six times. Yeah, well, it's wholesale, right? Like retail markup is usually like 70% or, or so more. With all of those factors combined, like exchange rate, our market, always a season behind regardless, just because it's summer when it's the US winter and also due to the, the wholesale part. There's just so many more options in the US. So it's just so much cheaper. I, I also like how much it is to ship a pair to Australia. It will probably cost the same amount <laughs> just to ship. <laughs> I was like, what? To me, that was like absurd to pay the same amount as a product for shipping. So it would have been a hundred bucks. US still way there. cheaper though. Uh, still way it. cheaper. But she told me if <clears throat> you can at least bulk buy, then we can kind of have a flat shipping fee. And the order was like a minimum 20 pairs. So I just went to my friends. I went to an all girls school and I told them, hey, you know, these shoes are like 40 something Australian dollars. Do you want to get them with me? And it was really interesting because I didn't even think about marking any of my friends up but a lot of them were like there's no freaking way that this can be real <laughs> because how is it this cheap <laughs> right I was like wait that's the issue like it's too cheap and I would tell them like these are all the factors and they're like oh I don't know and also because no one really online shopped back then everyone used cash went to a physical store so they thought it would have to be around the $300 price it seems really too cheap if it's 40 or 50 that's crazy so then yeah. then you were like oh maybe we should mark it up yeah because no one thought it was real <laughs> it was too good to be true yeah too good to be true so I went to another group of friends and it was just like all guys from private schools and I asked them hey I have these shoes they're 80 dollars because at least it covers our shipping if I don't get an order of 20. And they had a really interesting response. The big difference that I saw was that when I go to an all-girls school, a lot of them would say, why would you charge your friend extra? You're just ripping off your friend. So that was kind of the mentality that the all-girls school kind of had. And then when I went to these guys whose parents are probably really well off as well, they, they think differently. So this guy said to me, hey, I have a group of 20 friends that would want to buy this, but what do I get out of it? And I was like, wow. Very business savvy, this guy. (laughs) So I told him, if you can get me an order of 20 by the end of next week, you can charge whatever you want. As long as it's more than $80. Since shipping will be covered, I'll make a $40 cut. And if you want to charge $250, you can go ahead and make $170 per pair of shoes, right? He thought it was a win-win situation for his friends. You get it cheaper than $300. And it's still roughly in the same price range. So, you know, it's credible as well. And then he gets to make a bunch of money. So he's like, why not? That makes total sense. We all win. 
I thought that was really interesting that I immediately observed the difference. That's actually so fascinating that like this guy was so business savvy at such a young age as well. And was that kind of the first moment where it kind of switched for you? At like, that point, that- I I wasn't even thinking about career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I live very much in the moment, and I think I still kind of do at this point. I still don't know what to do with my career, to be honest. <laughs> Because I feel like the world keeps changing so much anyway. So there's no point mapping out what I think a career would be when whatever society happens or whatever industry, new industries happen, I will just try to pivot whatever skills I currently have towards things I'm interested in. I think that's always just been my personality, though. I've tried planning and it just never works out. So it doesn't happen anyway. <laughs> awesome. And I think that's really great that you've been able to find something that you're interested in and then take it to the next level. And I think that that's been somewhat consistent in all the things you've done after this as well, right? Yeah. So kind of just finishing this (laughs) story. Yeah. that It was a very mental switch of, we shouldn't be thinking about things kind of, I'm here to do you a disservice, but actually I'm here to help both sides. I'm here to create win-win situations. So Um, I went to nine other friends, all guys from different private schools. And I just said the same thing. If you can get me an order of 20 by the end of the week week or next week, you can charge anything that you want. And you should just see the eyes just like light up. They're like, hell yes. Like, let's fucking go. (laughs) All I did, my minimum viable product was just one Excel sheet, one Word doc, one Facebook page, which is still live somewhere. Called a very stupid name. I didn't even end up really using the the Facebook page. It was completely word of mouth. And I would just put all those different colors and the shapes of the shoes. They were like the ones with like panda bear heads and wings and stuff and then different colors. Yes. And that's them. They would give me the list of names, address. And because I had no money to pay for these in advance, I would make everybody once they registered, give me a $40 bond. Mm. Then I could actually like, use the money to pay for it and then once the shoes came they would give me the rest of the money Mm. so in that one week and a half 10 people gave me 20 orders each and each one I made a $40 profit so in that one half weeks I made 8k and that's like someone's salary for the month yeah exactly wow that's cool I think what was interesting was at least five of the 20 people would reach out to me and say hey I saw that my friend sold me these shoes. I have 20 friends too. Like, can I also sell it to other people? Wow. That's so cool. And I think what's so fascinating was that you went about this not by yourself. I don't know if you did this on purpose, but it was really nice that you actually built kind of like a team around you. So you didn't have to individually sell like one by one by one. And that you thought at a very early age to see how we can like scale this. Because otherwise, like it would have been probably quite a lot of work for you to individually sell to how many was like 20 times 10, right? So 200 people. I think the question I've always asked consistently in anything that I do is like, how can I make the most amount of impact with the least amount of work? The two things that I think is intuitive and maybe other people don't is the fact that one, I deliberately took less of a pie. I didn't say, yeah, let's split 50-50. And a lot of people would actually take more, right? Like I'll take 70, you take 30. Because I have to actually do a lot more work to source all of the stuff and get all of the shoes and actually take on most of the risk. But I thought, you know what? I don't have that network. So it would be to motivate people, to incentivize people. I will take a wider pool and they can take a deeper cut. 
So in the end, we all win. I think that that is a, a different kind of mental switch. And I think the second thing is that I had no business plan, did not register for a business name until like six months later when someone was like, what are you going to do with the taxes? <laughs> you were like, wait, what? I was like, oh, what is that about? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even have a website until a lot later as well, just a Facebook page. That's amazing, honestly. I feel like that's like the opposite of how a lot of people start a business, you know? Like they're like, oh, I'm going to like test my idea by setting up a Facebook page or a website. We'll like run ads on it. You were like, let's go. None of the fancy schmancy stuff. I had no resources. So I think creativity comes when you have some sort of limitation to think differently. Because if you have unlimited resources, then maybe you would be like, okay, let me spend all this money and then see if I can get lots of money in return. But if you have nothing, like I don't have money to do Facebook ads. I mean, it didn't even exist back then. But to me, intuitively, it's like I have no money. So unless you pay me, I'm not going to be doing this. If there's a big enough problem to solve, someone will pay you for it. So that's just how I'm going to test. And it just happened to be things that I, I wanted. I, I wanted to pair. My friends wanted to pair. I knew this was like a market, at least within my friends. I think I ran it for a year and a half all the way till I finished high school. That was an interesting journey. I learned a lot as well. But I think it was just like step by step. Oh, maybe make a website. Maybe like incorporate do a little bit of accounting for it. Yeah, generally it was just for fun as well. It did make a lot of money. So I made half a mil by the time I That's finished amazing. high school. Revenue or profit. Profit, yeah. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that would count as a legitimate business. Yeah, exactly. But it didn't feel like that. It just felt like a lot of fun and meeting a lot of people. Was it like just within school friends and then school friends of school yeah. friends? So it was all yeah. within like the school network. Yeah, it was very much like high school people were my market across maybe Sydney and Melbourne. You guys helped me sell to your friends and then you guys can mark up whatever you want it to be. Like that continued to be your business model throughout. Yeah, that was pretty much the business model. That's amazing, honestly. And to have that under your belt, to have made like half a million dollars by the time you were 18, that was insane. Did that help to like fund your college? Yeah, I mean, it helped fund a lot. I bought a property in Melbourne. so At 18? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So it was an investment property, a apartment that I just rent out. And know. what made you decide to invest in, in property? That's something I was always interested in. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was really young. And even in high school, I was like, I want to be financially free by the time I'm 30. I think also with Asian parents, they always like, you have to buy, not rent. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> but now I'm renting. But that's <laughs> honestly pretty amazing. I'm just thinking back to when I was 18, right? I think I would have never thought, you know, about any of these things. You made half a million dollars and instead of like spending on, I don't know, random things, you were like, okay, like, let's be responsible about this and let's see how can I make the money grow. I think that also speaks to your character as well. I think someone who's like quite responsible and have kind of thought through life a little bit, <laughs> quite mature <laughs> for, for an 18 year old, I would say. You had this kind of like entrepreneurial side or this business side to yourself at a young age, or it truly was like kind of happenstance and you kind of fell into it. Honestly, I think um, art played a big part in it. I was never afraid to do projects or try different things of what I wanted to do. And when I look back, like I had a lot to, to do with that. When I draw, I don't really 
use pencil. I don't mark anything out. Every time it starts in a completely random place, maybe in the middle of the page, maybe on the left, right, up, down. It, I just look at a thing and I just start drawing somewhere. And sometimes I'll be like, "Oops, maybe should have thought this out a little bit more." Now I can't fit this part in. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know this kind of habit that you build drawing on a blank piece of paper is basically you know you. Have to just start somewhere on the page, and I think that the current education system, right, is very much you have to be perfectionist. You cannot make mistakes. Like they don't reward failure. They don't reward experimenting either. And so a lot of people basically walk around with all these ideas, but it's always a blank piece of paper because they're too scared that once it starts, there's no going back. And two, you're going to make a mistake, and then you have to, you know, start over. But Literally with a pen. By the time I'm halfway there, I always make a mistake somewhere, like a blotch on the paper, or like I drew this thing and it looks like ass. And I w- would always feel like I should like start over again. And then I'm like, I don't really want to start over again. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try like work around it and fix it. And by the end, most of the time you can't tell, and actually it looks like a really awesome part of the, the piece. So I feel like that is the mentality that you train, and I feel like that has really translated in. Whenever I start something, you just start something. Like, what's the big deal?、Mm-hmm. And then things will come up for sure because I often don't plan <laughs> a lot of these things. But you just kind of work around it, and you figure it out along as it goes. You iterate, and then eventually become bigger than what you even could imagine in the beginning. So I think people put so much pressure that it needs everything needs to be perfect, everything needs to be planned out, everything has to be the right timing.、Or、Doesn't it. matter. <laughs> yeah, for people who are maybe struggling with that perfectionist mindset, do you have any advice for them? I think, for example, art is such a simple way to start that is not such a big deal for people. And I think that if you can actually train that, where you do things that are irreversible, maybe you can just practice that habit of of doing it when you don't want to. That is something that you can just like train if it's not natural to you. I think a lot of people also do it for writing. You know, you get writer's block. You want it to be perfect. You edit every sentence, but just give yourself a time limit. You just have to write for ten minutes, and if you do that consistently, even when you don't feel like it, then that also is practicing doing something. I know my boyfriend's currently trying to do that as well、mm-hmm. to write more content, and you have to just kind of forego that need. For it to be perfect, I love it. Okay, let me move on to the next business you started in university. So my parents have always been like, once you hit eighteen, we're not going to fund you anymore. And their reasoning is that you know we can give you freedom and independence, but in return you have to kind of take care of yourself. And I thought that was a great bargain. And so I had to start thinking about. This before I moved, and because all of my cash was like tied up in a property in Melbourne that I'm not going to live in, and I paid a third of it in in tax, <laughs> so I wasn't left with actually that much. I was like, okay, I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to figure out what I want to do once I start university. So my last year, when I was doing the high school certificate exams, I was actually going to apply for a cadetship at accounting firms. It's basically where companies hire students straight out of high school, and they do a four-year contract where you work full time first year and part time study, 
or it could be full-time study, part-time work, and they pay for your school fees, your books, everything, and pay you a salary. So then you do a rotation of full-time, part-time, full-time, part-time over four years. By the time you graduate, you become a senior, whatever it is. So you kind of skip that graduate phase. A lot of companies do this in Australia. It's like with investment banks. So some people did kind of like UBS cadetships or whatever. I did an accounting cadetship and there can be engineering cadetships and different industries as well, depending what you're interested in. And I was like, oh, wow, you get to be paid to learn and also study. Like they'll pay for your school fees too, a salary, and you can feel like a real adult. Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> so I got into a company called BDO, which is like a global accounting firm. And I honestly didn't know what to expect. I thought, okay, you know, now I've done a business. Accounting is kind of like the basis of business. So let me learn a bit more. I was planning, okay, I'll do four years of this cadetship. Then I'll get my CPA. Then I'll start a business. Yeah, I didn't even get to year one. I, I started this cadetship in my first year of uni. I was working full-time at BDO. And I had all of these thoughts of what corporate life was going to be. You're just like, I'm going to look so cool wearing this pencil skirt, going to a fancy office. Like, this is so exciting. That wears off literally three weeks in. (laughs) And I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be doing any of this. It just was everything that I do not like in a job. One, it's so corporate. It's very nine to five micromanagement of your time. And I hate being controlled by my time. I would rather you just look at my output. I did not like the work. It's so repetitive and monotonous. I think it would suit some types of people, but just for me, it was just antithesis of everything that I am. No creativity, no relationship building, just no sense of curiosity because everything was very much by the book. Here's what you do. That's it. Don't go outside of this. Like just execute on what we say. Exactly. But actually, it's interesting that you went into accounting because you felt like it would be useful for business. Did you ever consider starting a business and getting that business to pay for your education, given that you had already started a successful one before? I just didn't know what I wanted to start. This was a great excuse for me to figure it out. It was always like, if I find something that I really like, then it will be a natural progression. But until that point, I have no idea. (laughs) I'm not going to start for the sake of it because... If I'm not passionate about something, I would just not continue. So mm-hmm. I just thought this was a new chapter. And that was a really great experience of knowing exactly what I didn't want. It's cool that you got to experience that so early on, right? Like so many people don't really get their first taste of really working at a corporate until maybe the last few years of university or once they graduate. Yeah. So the second business started actually after that one year in my cadetship out of four years. Did you stick it out for four? I know I stuck it out for one and I thought that was impressive enough. (laughs) So I was like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll go get an internship somewhere. Like I'll go overseas because I felt like Australia was such a bubble. And Julia Gillard had just wrote this white paper that was like Australia in the Asian century and how we need to work with Asian business. And so I was like, well, I'm Chinese. So no brain, I'll go to China. Initially, I wasn't, Thinking about starting a business, I just went to ISEC, which is this global nonprofit organization that helps match you up with either volunteering or internship experiences. So I was like, well, this already exists in my uni. Why wouldn't I go to them and ask for an internship? So I go into the interview and I was saying, do you have an internship in China? And they were like, yeah, we do. But do you want to volunteer teaching English in Hungary? I was like, what? 
at all. <laughs> In Chinese, it's called Ji Gen Ya Cho. It's like Chen and a duck is like trying to speak to each other. And I was like, what is happening in this conversation? And two weeks later, I get this email that was like, you have been rejected from this process. So I'm like, um, okay, screw you. I'm going to go for my internship. And then I basically got all of my friends because I didn't want to go to China by myself. I was like, hey, do you guys want to do an internship in China? And I'll organize everything. I'll organize your language learning. I'll organize your internship. I'll organize everything. It's going to be $2,000. And then I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? Where do I even start? Like, I don't even know what company to begin with, where to even go. Once again, it's the question of like, how can you do this like the easiest way possible for the most amount of return? So I basically just took 400 different emails scraped it from the internet of the dean of international education because i knew that their kpi is to get more international students and universities always hold the relationships with companies in their city so i just thought that was the easiest way so i just looked for this specific dean in the international education department and emailed in my shitty chinese was like hey i have these 20 students who want to come to your city we love your we love your university do you want to take us? Here are all their resumes, what they're studying. And, you know, we'll pay you a lump sum, $2,000. <laughs> That's so smart though, I must say, like reaching out this way versus reaching out to individual companies. How did you even come up with it? I feel like this is really like outside of the box thinking. It's like a network thinking, right? Or like systems thinking. I think it's more like understanding what is rela- relevant to each player and seeing what the connection is. And I think that has always been how I thought in terms of trying to get things done faster. What are the things that is relevant to each party and which ones are the connecting points? If you just react to the right person, you get all of the other things solved too. Yeah. And then that means it's this one connection point rather than 100. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that I have a career coaching program. Designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and building your dream career. Do you feel unfulfilled and unhappy at your job despite having the perfect, prestigious, high-paying role? Are you great at chasing and acing other people's dreams but have no idea what your own goals and dreams are? Do you know deep down that you need to quit your job but you're not sure what else you would even want to do? Well, if this sounds like you, I have a three-step framework built to help you solve this problem. Want it? Check out the show notes to today's episode to download the free guide to find your passion today. All right, back to the episode. So then I just like emailed all of them. I think four people replied. One of them worked out and this was Liaoning University in Shenyang. But I looked on Google Maps. And I literally see that it's on the border of North Korea. So I was like, okay, (laughs) you guys want to come to Shenyang? (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, Shanghai. And I was like, nope. (laughs) And I Wikipedia this place and I was like, you know, Shenyang is the capital of Northeast China. It's a rapidly growing city. It used to be the capital city actually before Beijing. And so it has an imperial palace. So it's of great historical importance. Actually, a lot of historical events have happened in this region. I was like, you don't want to go to a first tier city like Shanghai 
or Beijing where you can speak English. You want to go to a place where you're working with real Chinese businesses. You get to practice your shitty Chinese, become fluent, and make your parents proud. By the time you come back, you know, and when you actually come back to Australia, you can use this on your resume to say, "Hey, I worked in a tier two city in China where I worked with real Chinese businesses in various industries, and I I really understand how Chinese people do business locally." That's amazing. Anyway. I'm convinced. Yeah, and I was like, "We can go to Harvey on the weekend, and we can go skiing, and you know, it will be really fun." Honestly, it was more just a fun friends trip. <laughs> They put us up in some internship places like Bank of China, but honestly, we didn't really do much. And yeah, we just went clubbing a lot. <laughs> we did do like a lot of language learning, cultural studies, and stuff as well. And for part of it, we also lived in the school dorms and met all these international students. So it was a lot of fun. And the dean was like, "We love your students, all your Aussie students. We never had Australian students before. So they have a lot of African students, or like Kazakhstan. Yeah, it was like an interesting mix. So I was like, yeah, I'll be down to come back again. And she was like, can you bring more students back? Let's sign a contract. Like, what's your business name? And I was like, hmm, business name. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get back to you on that one. <laughs> No, it was like two seconds. I was like, "Oh, it's called Austin." Oh. Australian interns squashed together.、Oh, yeah,、okay. not that creative. So we made a an agreement. Used her dean stamp, you know, this very Chinese official looking document. And I went back to Australia, and me and my friend Michelle, we had to work backwards. So July, it was school holidays. There's only one month that is free, so it has to be done. Like we have to go by July. June, everyone's in exams. Everyone has to have their flights bought. May, you need to have done all of the acceptance, so getting everybody to pay for the program. April, you need to do all the interviews to filter people and curate. And then by March, I need to know what the hell I'm doing. And I came back in February, so、what? I was like, okay, <laughs> it's like one month. Oh my god, okay. So in that one month, I had to figure out what the program was and just start promoting it. So we did a lot of informational sessions at my university. I thought if I say that this is my program, who's going to actually believe me? I'm a 19 year old. I'm literally starting second year uni, and everyone is older than me, right? Like who's going to pay me to take them on a program? So how I said it was. This is Liaoning University's program. Their business school is top ten in China. I had to use the business school part because <laughs> the school is definitely not tier one. And this is a chance for you to understand Chinese business. It was very different to what Austin became, but it was just what I had to work with. We ended up taking forty students, each paying two point two k each. And honestly, the program was a. Disaster did not account for a lot of things. Like this is the first time trying to create a program, and I would have internships half day. Then we come back to the university and do Chinese language learning. But I didn't account for the fact that a lot of the companies that the dean had scheduled our students to go were so far away that the city is massive, so it was like two hours away. So they literally couldn't come back to do the Chinese classes. So every single day, me and my four high school friends. Who were helping facilitate this thing? We just like sat for two hours interviewing every single student, 
And by the next day, the whole schedule would have changed. And we actually did that for the entire three weeks. Every single day we interviewed, got feedback, and then actually- Would make changes to the program. Yeah, by the next day. Mm -hmm. The whole schedule would change or the activities would change. Like literally everything had changed by the end of the program. So we were not waiting for the end of the program to iterate. We had to do it on a daily basis. And I'm pretty sure I refunded half the people too. It was probably a mixed experience. We definitely like learned a lot. Being realistic here, one say that it was the best. I'm sure everyone had a lot of fun, but there were a couple of problems I saw. And the one that really irritated me the most was the fact that when the university create that internship, certain students allocated to certain companies based on their criteria. And the companies would look at our students, right? And be like, okay, these are a bunch of English speaking students who don't even know Chinese. So let me just sit them in this boardroom and they can just sit there and do nothing. I was literally like pissing my pants. What is happening? Yeah, yeah. Can you give something for them to do? And so I had to make projects for them and then be like, can our students just present to you at the end? We had this one company, this owner, he basically inherited his parents' company, which had to do with composite materials. So it was called Best Composites. And he could speak fluent English. He was young, 30-year-old. But he was really awesome. At first, everyone was like, why would I want to go to a company called Best Composites? What the hell is even composite materials? But it was really fun for the students who did go because they could do actual projects. You could basically 3D print anything. And he came up with this HR project and this also showroom project where they had to build what a showroom would look like for Ferrari. They just had so much fun 3D printing everything, making this whole project work and ended up everyone who was wanted to go to a bank, they were just like, can I switch to this <laughs> company? It was frustrating that people are paying for this internship. But I can literally make anything else perfect, have so much fun, have all these activities, make it really enriching. But if this internship doesn't provide a lot of value, then they're not going to get what they paid for. And so the constant question that I had was, how can I make these experiences consistent no matter which company they are allocated to? It was during that time, um, after one or two programs, I met Jamie, my co-founder, who was on your podcast. And she was like, why don't you take what that experience was and apply it to the other companies? So when she joined as a co-founder, the first thing we did was one, move out of China. And then two, it was to make this experience consistent. So instead of just doing an internship, we kind of changed it so that we would work with the company beforehand so that they could give a problem that they're facing and we would teach students design sprint. And we ended up using Google's design sprint to basically teach students through a process of how can you prototype, how can you test something, how can you pitch it back to the executives? And then on the company side, they can actually see how these students perform, work in teams, resolve conflict, come up with ideas, pitch, communicate, and they could use that as a hiring process as well. So Jamie joined a year and a half after I had started, and I'm very grateful for her for coming on board because at that time I was maybe 19 or 20 and she was like 26, 27, like my age now. And she gave up a high six-figure job to work with this early 20s to start this business. How did you find Jamie? Did you know that you wanted to have a co-founder at this point? 
I was always looking for someone that could complement my skills. That's why I never got on any of my friends to be a co-founder because I felt like it would be very similar. I always wanted someone who could actually work full time whilst I was studying and also talk to companies side because I can get students, I can create programs, but I wanted someone who could also do partnerships with companies which I didn't think I had enough credibility to do at the time. And I actually met Jamie at church. I hit it off with Jamie straight away. We just like chatted for ages and we were actually thinking of doing another business. And then at the same time, I was telling her about what I was facing with Austin and she came up with these solutions. And then I was like, actually, why don't you just join me on Austin? Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. So really just kind of fate or luck rather than anything. It just yeah. so happened that you guys met. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, life-changing. She joined and then we immediately changed to Singapore, Hong Kong in 2016 rather than Shenyang. I just had a lot of issues with working obviously in Shenyang, China and language, cultural, like honestly had a lot of culture shocks and business things that I wasn't accustomed to. Now that I had already run these programs, I could generally see what we needed. And what we did instead was we would design three-week programs. The first week, I realized people need to get accustomed to a place. Just dropping them into a internship on day one is like not a good start of a trip because it's very chaotic. Some people are like traveling across the world to come here. So you want kind of a week of easing people into a completely new environment where we did fun activities like amazing race around the city to get to know the city. And then we also did a lot of workshops. We would invite mentors to come in and do reverse mentoring sessions. And the next two weeks are really intense because we would work with one company each. So that way it wasn't like every single student had to go to a different internship, we would just say we're working with two companies where the first company would usually be a corporate. The second company would usually be a startup. It's to really get people to understand what it was like to work in different environments. Since I only knew I didn't suit a corporate environment by experiencing it. And this was a way you can condense your experience into three weeks instead of wasting six months or a year doing that. Because you can usually tell within the first week. And so working with these different companies, the formula was always the same. They give a problem they're facing. We work with Philips on marketing, a room humidifier kind of thing. And we work with Carousel as an expansion strategy into Australia. And they ended up hiring the students to actually roll it out to Melbourne universities. And so it was like two contrasting experiences, two very different working styles with the people that they engage with. But the project will always be the same. So that at the end, they always have two projects, two names that they have done a whole experience on. And this way we could control the experience. If you're lucky and you do really well, you probably get hired as well. But even if you don't, you have these projects that you've finished, you've experienced a completely new environment and you've basically made lifelong friends because you're staying in the same, we would hire out a whole hostel for people, everyone to live in like a house. And that's so um, fun. You would be with these people 24 seven. That's really cool. Okay. So it it then eventually scaled into this huge thing, but how did you guys figure out the business model for all of this? It was a lot of trial and error, but we would iterate every single program. And what we did was that we created a kind of sustainable way of getting feedback to be implemented into the next program. So what I was working on designing was a facilitative program where we would pick the most 
high potential alumni. And I built out this whole program for facilitators. And it was this process of understanding what are their motivations. I would make them sign a contract so that they would feel committed to it. And how would I pitch it to them is that you now get to experience what it's like to actually make changes within a company and make actual impact. And a lot of people want to experience different, you know, do I want to do marketing? Do I want to do operations? Do I want to do HR? Do I want to do program management? Here's a way that you can actually learn all of these things through Austern, like as a company, and then we'll pay for you to go overseas to facilitate these programs. And one of the things we would do is before we would go on a program, we would pick all of the facilitators and then we would hire out like a staycation house and everybody would come for a weekend and we would do a shark tank where everybody had to pitch things that they would change in the program. Everyone had to vote on what they would keep, what they would build, what they would take out. And so when you have them actually contributing to that and making those changes, then I don't feel like I need to micromanage because they feel like they played a part in an ownership over this program. So when they actually run it, it's like there's part sweat and tears have gone into this. They made those changes. So now they're going to run this really well. And so this was just a cyclical way of the program naturally becoming better and better every time. And you could be a bit more hands-off from it. You didn't have to be the facilitator for all these different programs. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't be in six places could, at once. Yeah, you think of Hong Kong, Sydney, Melbourne, Shanghai, New York, like which one am I going to be part of? Yeah, That's pretty awesome. How did you build those relationships with so many different companies in so many different countries? Jamie definitely played the biggest part in building the relationships with the companies. And it was a lot of just cold outreach on LinkedIn. And I learned a lot from her as well in terms of how she reached out to people. She would A-B test her messages. And a lot of it was very much researching the person that she's reaching out to, whether they've done podcasts, whether they've done videos and citing those things. You were more in charge of the demand and she was more in charge of the supply, I guess, in in that sense. Yeah. 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 Like the two parts of the equation, we would kind of just manage one each. Mm -hmm. And did you have to pay the companies or did the companies have to pay you guys to be part of this? No, actually, because it was a weak experience with those companies, it was just more as a way for companies to one, promote their branding to students. They want that kind of exposure on marketing or it could be for hiring. And so sometimes part of the business model was with students paying, but eventually we got it to the point where we partnered with universities to get a course accredited so they could take government loans and it could be part of their school credit. And then the companies would pay sometimes like a hiring fee if they actually successfully hired a student out of it. Got it. Cool. And so you mentioned that like the pricing was a bit of like a trial and and error. So was it just like you tested out with like the $2,000 at the beginning and then you kind of just saw like, okay, where can we make money or where can well, we cut costs? Or? Yeah, we kind of look at it two ways. One is the demand and one is the actual cost. When we moved to Singapore, Hong Kong, it's significantly more expensive than China. And so we had to figure out what is the the pricing that makes sense that we can actually pay ourselves, but also have enough buffer on a cost sense. And then also look at what is the standard kind of program price that includes accommodation. And we tested out, for example, 3,300 and significantly so many people were dropped off. 
And so we lowered it to 2970, just slightly under 3000. And the pickup rate was 80% more. So we realized, okay, people don't like to hear the three in front of this program price. They think that that's too expensive. If we just do under 3000, it just feels so much better for a lot of people. Got yeah. it. Got it. And so you ran this for how long? Was it like throughout your university? Yeah, I ran it for five years. Okay. So um, even after you graduated, you were working on this? Well, I just graduated really late. <laughs> Got it. But at this point in time, you were making good money from this business? Yeah. So we generate over seven figures in revenue. In, yeah, in one year? Four employees. Yeah. That's insane. Wow. So I guess you eventually moved on from Austin, but like, what made you decide to, to move on? I just felt like I was graduating and it had gone to a place where it was very comfortable and there's a formula. Here's how we do the marketing. Here's how we get students and here's running the program. So it got to a point where the iterations got less and less drastic. And it was kind of just like doing the same motion over and over again. And I had just graduated and I was like, do I still envision myself doing this in a couple more years? I think you can tell by now, even if I make money, that's not the thing that I consider but I really felt like I'm very stagnant in what I'm doing. And I was like, how am I going to learn from other people? I was very stuck. Like, do we franchise this? Do we build a technology solution? Just honestly felt kind of lost. And I wanted to learn from other people. Mm-hmm. Also, it's stressful. Not the business running per se, but actually because it's a physical program. If you can imagine, there's like 18 to 21-year-olds running around across the world, hundreds of them at the same time. I was so paranoid. I made everybody, before they go, sign death waivers. Oh, wow. Because when you're overseas, you can control maybe up to 5 p.m., like the experience and then people go out clubbing and go yeah. drunk, obviously naturally, like they go party. Sometimes I went with students to Bali on the weekend. Like you can't really control what happens yeah, yeah. during those off times. So that's really stressful. I was like, thank my lucky stars. Like nothing, nothing actually bad happened. ever happened in those five years because wow. I would have been wrecked. Got it. Yeah. So the business was getting a bit like stagnant. You weren't really learning as much and yeah. there was a lot of underlying stress. So you decided to move on. Did you keep the business running at that point? No, we stopped it because we both didn't know what to do with it as well. So we sold parts of the IP and then we just stopped it. Okay. So you exited from this. And I know that you then went on to actually take on a job at New Campus. I took one month off, but I started New Campus. It was called QLC, which stood for Quarter Life Crisis. At the time, that business model was kind of similar to Austin, but digital and for a different demographic. It was for older kind of career people who are facing kind of a quarter life crisis. They want to transition careers so they can do an internship for a remote company and build their portfolio so that they can pivot to another industry. I was joining as like VP of growth. And what I wanted to do that year was because it was a remote company, everyone was located everywhere. I was going to do one year of traveling where I learned four languages. And so I booked January 2019 to do one month in Korea. And then I was going to just extend it as I went along, go to Japan, go to France, go to South America to learn Spanish. And on New Year's Day, my manager, my boss called me and was like, hey, we're going to actually pivot to new campus. What's new campus now? Start over again. It's a different business model. It's a different brand name. 
it was basically a new company. Can you come to Singapore as a country manager and help roll out, operationalize this new business? And can you come now? I was like, I just booked one month in Korea. So let me come end of the month when I'm done with this one month. And I'll come to Singapore for six months to roll this out. That was the timeline. So I went to Singapore the first day I met my boyfriend at the hostel I was staying at. The first day. Wow. first day. He was coming from Bali and he was on a one-year travel sabbatical. He was going to do six months in Asia, three months in Europe, three months in South America. So whilst he was in Asia, every month I would go visit wherever he was. And then six months later, I told my work, hey, you know how you told me earlier, this was going to be six months in Singapore. I'm actually going to continue my traveling to Europe and South America So they actually helped me transition from a BD kind of role of like helping set up and make all of the relationships and transition to head of programs, like helping build the product of the business. So getting instructors, running conferences, designing learning pathways and helping pivot the business to what it eventually was, but became more product focused whilst I was out traveling. So we ended up going to Europe and South America for eight months whilst working remotely. That's actually super awesome. And I think for people who are in like a very typical kind of job, I think that's really hard for people to envision what that's even likely. How did you even convince your bosses to let you do that? That was the expectation I set out with the them beginning. from the beginning. That was already my plan was to work remotely and travel and learn languages. In the interview process, you... yeah brought that up and you were like, Hey, I'm looking for this. Would you guys be able to work with me to offer a job where I have the flexibility to do this? Yeah. One of the first conversations I had with Dexter, my boyfriend was what are our values? I know you're a career coach as well, but he had a career coach that told him here, a list of values. You rank them high, medium, low out of the high rank, your top 10, top five. And I did my test and we realized that out of the five top values out of 50, four of our five values were the same. Mm -hmm. And this five is one, curiosity, two, adventure, three, freedom, four, relationship building, and five, creativity. And his was courage instead of creativity. Mm -hmm. When I was evaluating taking on a new campus job, I wasn't evaluating how much is this pay going to give me? Because it's a startup, it's not going to pay me much. But I also wasn't concerned about pay at the time. But I need freedom And I was really looking for that adventure. And I always wanted to go and travel and learn languages and fulfill that curiosity of like, can I learn a language in three months and become fluent was my challenge. Did you ever consider not working? Because if you exited your business, I assume you exited and like had a good lump sum paid out to you so that you could not work for a little bit. I could, but also I was just talking to QLC at the time and it was just like, okay, yeah, sure. I guess if they we weren't in that conversation, I would have also just not taken a job either. Mm, got it. Okay. So I think one of the things that I'm hearing is that like you kind of set the expectation that like you were going to have this flexibility and this time off. So it wasn't like you joined the job and then you asked your manager for that flexibility. And I think that you were also in a 
place where you felt very confident in your abilities. So it was almost like, I don't really need this job. If it doesn't give me what I need, then like, I'm happy to not take this job. And I think that that sort of confidence then also gave you that flexibility. The company really did want you for you. And they were like, okay, let's work with Lily to see what we can do to support Lily in not just work, but also in the life aspect. That's quite different from, I think, the mentality that a lot of people go into when it comes to a job. They're like, oh my God, I need the job. So I think that's actually super cool. Very different from how people usually approach this sort of conversation. So, you know, you joined a new campus and you were working from South America. Was the time difference challenging for you to be able to do your job? Actually, no, because I like the time difference just because I could start at least three or four or 5 p.m. And so... I tend to work very early morning and then I would go out all day, explore. And then at night I would start working because when I'm not that much of a going out at night type of person anyway. So it worked out really well in terms of having enough time to explore a city during the day. And we even like did intensive Spanish lessons when we were in Mexico, Colombia, and then we would start working afterwards at like 4 or 5 p.m. onwards. So it actually worked out really great in terms of timing. I think the expectation was I would just do all my job. So it didn't really matter how long it would take. So often it wouldn't take eight hours, but I would kind of just try to manage my time better so that it could finish what I needed to do. So in that sense, it made me actually more efficient. And I still got a great performance review. So I feel like it is okay to balance if you're not judging purely by the amount of time that you're taking. As you said earlier, outcome-oriented rather than like the amount of time that you spend. Honestly, I feel like that's the dream for most people. So that's so super cool that you you managed to do that. For people who are thinking about pursuing something like that, the ability to balance travel and and also work, do you have any advice for them on how they could go about setting up this, this sort of life? Actually, honestly, now with COVID almost over, I think a lot of companies have changed their policies so that you can work from anywhere. I feel like I still have this life kind of with Stripe too, where they give you a lot of flexibility. I can go anywhere to work. So if it happens to be in different times, as long as I'm getting my work done and doing it at a high standard, it really comes down to like the company culture. And I think there's so many more options now than two years ago. For sure. I think a lot of companies now are realizing that work from home is a viable option for people. And I think it's just about having that conversation with your manager and really seeing if this is potentially something you could do for, you know, six months, eight months, just so you can see what it's like to work and live abroad while still having your job and your income there. And there you have it. The first part of my conversation with Lily. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, want to scale your business? Think about giving up some of your ownership or upside and leveraging network effects. When building her sneaker business and her education startup, Lily focused on finding one point of contact and getting that person to help her spread and scale the business. Whether it was the boy at school who would then help her find 20 more people to buy sneakers from her, or the dean of the university in China who would then help her find companies to set up internships, Lily was happy to give up some of her upside in exchange for efficiency and being able to scale her effort and time. Don't be afraid of giving up some of that ownership and some of that upside 
in exchange for some of that scale that could come along. Two, instead of mapping out a long-term career plan for herself, Lily recognizes that the world is constantly changing. So for her career, she focuses instead on taking the next immediate step and solving problems that she has herself. Three, a lot of the times people are afraid to execute on their ideas because they're worried that they would make mistakes or not have a fully thought through plan. But actually, the most important thing is just getting started. And if any challenges or difficulties inevitably come up, there's always a way to work around it and figure it out. Want to get better at executing or get more comfortable with failing and working around difficulties? Lily recommends taking up art to train up that muscle. Through art, Lily learned how to take a blank sheet of paper and just get started, and also to continue on if any mistakes were made. And lastly, think it's impossible to work while traveling the world? Think again. Lily managed to create that job for herself at New Campus by asking for it up front, defining a role, and setting a plan in place that would allow her to still contribute to the company with the time difference. And most importantly, finding a company that is focused on outcomes rather than FaceTime is crucial when you're trying to find a job that allows you to both work and travel. All right, so that's part one of the episode with Lily. Thanks for tuning in, guys, to another episode of Control Alt Career. Check out part two of the episode if you want to keep listening to Lily's story and find out how she got into NFT and what she knows about the exciting new world of Web3. And if you liked this episode, do share this with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. As always, if you're interested in getting some career coaching or just want to talk to someone about your career, feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys in part two.